0: Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our healthcare system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better healthcare system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve.
1: Hi. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm host of the program, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the doctorscore.com doctor rating website. Well, on today's show... We're going to discuss one of the biggest problems in healthcare, the high cost of care, and how we can lower the cost of health care. We welcome back our resident expert on saving money on health care, Dr. Cynthia Kelker. Dr. Kelker is a practicing family physician and author of the book 101 Ways to Save Money on Healthcare. In just a few weeks, a new edition of her book will be coming out. Cindy, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Steve. You know, we don't have guests on um, multiple times very often, but the work you've done is so valuable and so practical that uh, we may want to have you back again and again. Um, today I wanted to talk to you um, about one of, I think, one of the more valuable sections of your book, the section on preventive health. We talk so much with regard to health care reform about one of the few ways in which it could potentially really save money is through um, improving prevention. And here you're providing some really excellent thoughts uh, on ways to save money. Um, let's just start off um, Start off with women's health issues. You, you've got uh, ways to save on pap smears.
2: Yes. Um, people shouldn't put off a pap smear because they're afraid of the expense. And... Uh, there are some new guidelines on Pap smears, I suppose. As a dermatologist, you're not doing many Pap smears.
0: No,
1: don't do many Pap smears. <laughs> uh,
2: well, um, some years ago, when I started medicine, a Pap smear was thought to be to detect cervical cancer, which it still is. But the understanding is different now than then. That cervical cancer is almost always caused by the human papilloma virus, and so the screening for Cervical cancer is tailored more to the people at more at risk for um, uh, human papillomavirus, especially younger people who are probably more sexually active, probably with different people. And uh, so the recommendations for pap smears have changed. It used to be every year, and now it is every year for a while, but after age 30 it's every three years if you haven't had a problem. So you could save on a pap smear every year that way every two out of three years, at least, after
1: age 30. Yes, yeah, so, You know, before dermatology, it just seemed like pap were ubiquitous, and now they're kind of out of sight, out of mind for me. <laughs> one, one of the times they do come up is when we're treating young women who have um, rather severe acne with birth control pills. And mm-hmm. some people say, well, if you've got a young woman on a birth control pill, she's got to be having her pap test. Um, is that true, or is uh, I think it's more an issue of when you become sexually active as opposed to what medicine you're on.
2: Well, and that is entirely true. And uh, there are other issues, too, like some religious issues. Some women will not have a pap smear before they get married. But the um, the official uh, guidelines, at least through the uh, Preventive Services Task Force, is starting at age 21 or within three years of becoming sexually active. So if you start having sex at age 15, then by age 18. But really an argument could be made that if you just are totally abstinent and have never had sex, there's really no rush. You're really not going to get cervical cancer in your 20s when you're not having sex. So the official guideline is 21, but logically um, maybe older depending on your situation.
1: I'm sorry, what, what did you say, depending on the situation do
2: Well, um, the official guideline says age 21. Yes. But if you haven't ever had sexual intercourse and you're not planning to, the risk of cervical cancer is so very low that it almost doesn't make sense. that That guideline isn't exactly based on science. It's based on what you expect people, how you expect people will behave.
1: Yeah, people lying to you about when they actually had sex.
2: (laughs) That's true, Mm -hmm. too. I have over the years seen women of various uh, religious groups who absolutely will not have a pap smear until they're married. And presumably, also, they're not having sex. Um, But the official guidelines are within three years of starting to have intercourse or
1: age 21, whichever is first. Well, you know, this um, is an aside. This brings up a little bugaboo that I have. I've been thinking a lot lately about um, people who tell their doctors things that just aren't true. And I guess when we're thinking about saving money or we're thinking about prevention, um, we should... People should feel comfortable telling their doctors the truth because doctors want to help patients, and if they're hearing, oh, I'm not having sex when they are having sex or you know, they they tell the doctor they're using the medication when they're really not for whatever reason, it's not helping anybody.
2: No, and it really slows things down and it ends up costing more, and then you have to just guess at something. And a lot of the guidelines in medicine are, are based on knowing that people lie to us a lot. Let's not say lie. Let's say leave something out. <laughs> so, although sometimes they tell just tell a different story. Like if you go in the ER and you're a woman of reproductive age and you have abdominal pain, you will get a pregnancy test, whether or not, no matter what you tell them. They'll do a pregnancy test because they don't want to miss it. They So many people have lied in the past that they just assume anybody will, like Dr. House says, And uh, even though maybe you just have a urine infection, they'll probably do a pregnancy test. And the doctors don't know you, and they only have one shot at uh, getting the diagnosis right because it's an ER. If you went to your family doctor with the same symptoms, and if your family doctor trusts you, then they probably would not do a pregnancy test. Um, So it definitely helps to have a doctor who knows you.
1: Excellent advice. Well, uh, another women's health issue um, are mammograms. Uh, how about saving on money on mammograms? How do you do that?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, uh, last year the recommendation was changed for what age to start mammograms, and there's a lot of controversy over that. Uh, and they, for general screening, several powers that be, um, changed the recommendation from starting at age 40 to starting at age 50. But then there are women in their 40s who get breast cancer, but if you're not at great risk, you might might not want to do that. It also doesn't say you can't get a mammogram. If you're really concerned or if you have a problem, you can get it. But as far as uh, screening guidelines, um, the, effect and the effectiveness of mammograms is, is just not that great in the 40s. So for one thing, you could put it off a few years. If you're not having a problem, that's one thing. And secondly, there's lots of places that you can get uh mammograms paid for, pap smears too. Like there is a CDC website um that has uh a program called the National Breast and Cervical Cancer Early Detection Program, which is hard to remember that name. Um but so that people who think they cannot afford a mammogram or pap smear, there's programs in every state where you can get that.
1: Great. I think a lot of our listeners know the CDC is the Centers for Disease Control, but just knowing CDC is probably all you need because it's cdc.gov is their website.
2: Right. And you could just go there and look up pap smears or mammograms and um, find a place in your area where you could get that. And then there's also, if you have a local hospital, they often offer uh, reduced or free mammograms at some time through the year. August, not August, October, is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And especially in October, you're more likely to see those programs. And then you probably have heard of the Susan G. Komen for the Cure. There's a breast cancer helpline, which is 1-800-I'M-AWARE. And you can call them to get information on breast cancer, but also to find a place for a mammogram. And And then you could call your health department.
1: Yeah. One of the suggestions you have that I think is underutilized in today's Google era is asking your librarian. I find librarians to be an extraordinarily useful um, source of information.
2: And it would be a fun thing for them to do, too, to say, oh, well, where can we get that service in this area? Um, In our area... We have a medical school nearby, and they offer free mammograms sometimes. And in our area, we have a couple major hospitals, and they offer reduced-cost medicine, I mean mammograms based on your income. One one hospital has a program called Muffins for Mammograms. They sell muffins to raise money to pay for mammograms for people at the lower um, income levels. So you can get a mammogram. Um, don't put it off just because you think you can't afford it.
1: Now, one of the things you haven't mentioned with respect to the choice and timing of of mammograms is um, people's family history. Is that um, relevant? Uh,
2: Yes. You know, the guidelines are for people of average risk, like, say, age 50 for average risk people. But if your first-degree relative, your mother, your sister, your daughter has had breast cancer, you should certainly talk to your doctor about the possibility of getting one at an earlier age.
1: And if your family history is completely clear, you've got, I don't know, six aunts and half a dozen sisters and nobody's had breast cancer in the family ever, do you think it would be safe to spread them out a little further?
2: Um, Well, I would, and (laughs) me personally, and, uh, you know, it used to be recommended every year um but you know i i looked this up again for last year because things changed from uh, the first year i wrote the book to the second year that i updated it um but now it's every two years for ages 50 to 74 uh and before before they changed it last year it was every year now it's every two years
1: okay All right, what on the men's health side? I think, you know, when I I think about cervical cancer, breast cancer in women, I think about prostate cancer in men. Um, I hear there's a screening test.
2: There is a screening test, though it has some um, advantages and disadvantages. You're probably talking about the PSA test, prostate-specific antigen test, I assume. Yes. And um, it is certainly a good test. At times, but it has its limitations. For example, beyond a certain age, it's recommended not to get the test beyond age 75 because it's more likely to cause a problem than to fix a problem. That
1: That that seems so counterintuitive. Tell me more about that.
2: (laughs) Right, right. Well, and it's also true that older men are more likely to get prostate cancer, but they're also more likely to die of something else first before the cancer would kill them. Now, this is for people who are not having symptoms. If you are having symptoms, that's a different situation. A screening test, by definition, would be on people who are not thought to have the problem. So, so what kind
1: do. of symptoms should I be on the lookout for? You know, as I get older, my my kid, he he pees faster than I do. and
2: <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's true, too. Things slow down just because the prostate enlarges. But Sometimes that would be a symptom of uh, cancer, too, if you're really having trouble urinating if men cannot go as easily as they once did or if they're dribbling or if they're getting up at night to go or especially if you see blood or pus in the urine or it's hurting um, or if you're having weight loss, that would be of some concern, too. But Mm -hmm. anything where your urine is not how it once was, that would be a symptom, and that would sort of kick you out of the group of normal people for a screening test. So then your doctor probably would want to get a PSA test. But if you're totally fine, um, at least if you're 75 years and older, you don't need to get it at all. And actually, the United States Preventive Services Task Force says we don't even have enough evidence to decide um, whether you should get it or not. And above age 75, it actually does more harm to the general public than it helps
1: you're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. We're talking today with Dr. Cynthia Kelker. She's the author of the most practical book on saving uh, money on health care. The, the book is titled 100 Ways to Save Money on Health Care. We're, we're discussing today uh, issues of preventive health care and how to save money on preventive health care. Um, Cindy, uh, my uh, I'm over 50 now, so I'm having an annual physical. Um, is that something I can save
2: money on? Well, may, maybe. Um, first of all, there aren't really, uh, from a screening point of view, definite recommendations to get an annual physical. Now, some people want to get an annual physical, just like people who want to take care of their cars, Um, but strictly speaking, you maybe don't have to have an annual physical, and uh, for women, for example, women who get a pap smear or a breast exam, at least when I do it, I kind of give them a once-over and and see what's going on. It's not just a mammogram, I mean, just a breast exam. It's not just a pap smear. It's uh, examining the whole picture, so if you see a doctor for those reasons, You should ask, do I need an annual physical? Now your doctor might say yes for different reasons. One, maybe they believe in them and they want to do that. Secondly, it is a source of income. You always have to keep that in mind. Doctors do have to stay in business, and a a certain amount of income is derived from physical exams. The other thing is if you see your doctor on a regular basis anyway, say you just have high blood pressure, and you go two or three times a year, well, during those times, your doctor could do much of what would be done in a physical anyway. Um, it is it is true that at a physical you have the choice, I mean, the opportunity to do everything so that maybe you, you're not going to miss something. But on the other hand, what are you really looking for? You need to discuss risk factors. Like if you smoke, there would be certain things to look at. If you're a man over 50, there would be certain things to look at. Um I would say most of my patients don't come for an annual physical because we talk about the same things during the regular visit, so that's that's one way to do it.
1: you know I get the sense that if a woman's coming for her pep smear every three years and she gets the mammogram at the appropriate time and the, those visits maybe the blood pressure is checked and, and when they look when they listen to the heart and lungs uh Somebody looks at their back, makes sure there's no skin cancer back there. That that pretty much accounts for things. But um, I get scared as a dermatologist um, sometimes because I see these guys, and they've had their last visit with their pediatrician at age 18, and they're probably not going to see another doctor for the next, I don't know, 30, 40 years. Um, perhaps they need to come in for at least a blood pressure check somewhere along the
2: way. Yeah, you know, a lot of these recommendations are for people... Are, let's just say, are healthy. So if, you know, and if you think about it, maybe a lot of us aren't so healthy. We gain weight, we smoke, we drink, you know, we do things that could hurt us. We maybe don't get our immunizations. So I'm not saying to never see a doctor. In fact, you know, just like changing the oil on your car, it's reasonable to see a doctor now and then and to focus on the things that are important, either what's wrong with you or what could go wrong with you but that is pretty age specific you know most men who are 25 are not going to have a heart attack men who are 25 are drinking possibly using drugs or you know having sex and things like that so you really need to focus on those items uh family doctors are really encouraged to do that and whenever you see a patient let's say a guy comes in with a sore throat we're encouraged to say, "Have you had a tetanus shot?" Um, if you have time, ask them other questions like the, the relevant questions we're talking about. Like, could is there anything you need to talk about in the realm of uh, drug abuse or some other common problems?
1: Well, that that makes good sense. You, you mentioned heart disease. When I think about heart disease, I think about those cholesterol screening tests. Uh, is that something people need and if so, how do they save money on cholesterol screening?
2: Um, well, on cholesterol screening, boy, one thing people don't really understand is this so called number needed to treat and mm. um, I was looking up the other day cholesterol screening for uh, well for people of different ages, but including women over eighty over age sixty five women for women over age sixty five you have to treat three hundred plus women to help one person.
1: You treat them in what way?
2: Or with a cholesterol-lowering medicine.
1: You have to treat over 300 women with a cholesterol-lowering medicine before you see one reduced heart
2: attack? Is Right. For women over age 65. I mean, so it really kind of argues against using it. Um, for, for But even for the men at high risk, you know, say men in their 50s who already have high blood pressure and high cholesterol treating them for high cholesterol, the number needed to treat is still, I don't have the exact number in my head, but it's over 10. So, so you know, it's all statistical. Now, if you're the one person who has that heart attack, you're in trouble. If you're the nine people who um, didn't have the heart attack, well, really, how do you know it wasn't you? But, so what it really makes sense to do is to lower all your cardiovascular risk factors that you can, whether or not you're going to treat your cholesterol. So that means get your weight under control and don't smoke and make sure you had good parents. And um
1: Now, what do exercise. you mean by that? I think I understand. When you say make sure you had good parents, you mean genetics is, plays a large role in what your heart disease risks are.
2: Yes, I'm just kind of kidding you because we yeah. cannot change our parents, but um I, I, <laughs> Yes. I,
1: I remember the first time I had my cholesterol screen done, I was um uh, an intern in a medical center and part of the initial intake was that they checked your blood and they asked you some questions on how you're doing, whether you use seat belts, whether you smoke cigarettes and they check your cholesterol. And then they gave you advice, some sort of computerized advice on, on uh, your risks and what you could do about them. And my cholesterol was over 200 and they said that, you know, you really probably want to get this down. And if you do, Uh, you you could expect, if you could get it under 200, you could expect to live three months longer.
0: And I thought, well, (laughs)
1: gee, three months longer in the nursing home, do I realize how valuable is? am I going to give up donuts for that? And, uh, you know, I I don't, I guess, uh, you know, nowadays getting the cholesterol under control, the medications, The generic ones are so inexpensive that even for a small benefit, you know, the cost is not that great.
2: Right. And um, so you can uh, get generic cholesterol medicine now for $4 a month or $10 for three months. So that's that's great. Now that does not include um, Lipitor and it does not include Crestor, although Lipitor should be going generic, but it won't be $4 to start with. But if You know, it's far better to lower your cholesterol some. Say you start out with a cholesterol of 300. Far better to lower it some with a $4 medicine than none. And even though, say, generic um, pravastatin may not lower it as much as Lipitor, it would lower it some. And Lipitor might be over $100, but you could afford $4 and you'd be ahead that way. And, of course, if you really need Lipitor and you cannot afford it, there are programs to uh, have the company, uh, I think that's Pfizer, isn't it? Uh, Anyway, have whatever company it is, um, pay for your medicine or send it to you free, that is, through their patient assistance program, and there's a number of those.
1: You know, we talked about patient assistance for getting mammogram testing done, and I was pleased to see in your book a number of suggestions for Um, ways to get cholesterol screening done for free as well.
2: Yes, they do that at uh, a lot of community fairs. They do it at some drugstores. You can do it yourself even. You can get a home cholesterol testing kit. Some pharmacies carry those, or you can look it up online. Uh, They have those. Um, I came across some places where if you donate plasma or blood, they'll do a free cholesterol test uh, in exchange for doing that. Um, but a lot of the free tests are not quite the same as what you, your doctor would do. Your doctor would probably do a complete lipid profile, and the freebie tests are usually just the total cholesterol. But still, that would give you some idea. If your cholesterol, total cholesterol, is under 200, your LDL cholesterol is probably pretty good.
1: That, that's the bad cholesterol, the right. LDL. Yeah, yeah. I guess if yeah, if you don't get the more specific test, then you don't find out how your HDL, the good cholesterol is, and of course, we should be getting exercise to try to maximize that in any case.
2: Yes, and that you're getting back to the point that you, you can lower your cardiovascular risk without taking any drugs. Um, I have plenty of patients who smoke who are all worried about their cholesterol. It doesn't really even make sense, because if they just stopped smoking and didn't take cholesterol medicine, they'd probably be ahead. but it is hard to make lifestyle changes um, but it does make sense,
1: yeah um, well, I guess uh yeah, I mean, if you were trying to save money and improve health uh quitting smoking, boy, yeah, you, know, you take the money you're putting uh spending on cigarettes and put it in a no load mutual fund and watch it grow, you know, every time you feel like the need for a cigarette, I'd say, think about that boat that you're going to buy with all the money you're going to save.
2: Or or join a health club. That's uh, way cheaper than a pack a day of cigarettes.
1: Yeah. One of the, um, the screening tests that I just have a gut feeling is a really good thing to do. And it's really one of the more invasive screening tests that you could have it is a... Um, is is colon screening.
2: Well, yes, and I'd be interested in your take on that, too. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force does recommend colon cancer screening for anybody age 50 and older at average risk and younger if you have a a greater risk, but for average people 50 and older. But they don't uh, actually say that there's a preference for testing, like a colonoscopy which costs a fair amount around here, probably um, $1,600. Um, it's probably not any better than just checking for blood in the stool. But you need to check for blood in the stool every year, whereas the colonoscopies every uh, 10 years, people don't like colonoscopies that great. Um, and at least colon cancer often gives the early warning sign of bleeding, so you can pick it up uh, by checking a hemocult. Which is a test for blood in the stool.
1: The the uh, test doing the test for blood in the stool is is just as good as as uh, a full colonoscopy.
2: Well, you know it depends on your definition of good. Yeah. the To do it every year consistently is as good as at picking up cancer as having a colonoscopy every ten years. Oh wow. So so you might not say that's as good because you have to do it every year. But still, you know, you could do that test for. 20 bucks a year, so that's $200 in a decade,
1: mm-hmm.
2: versus $2,000. Um, and then, actually, this is all according to the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force, and it's all based on statistics and the likelihood of something showing up. Uh, a flexible sigmoidoscopy, the shorter scope, uh, every five years is considered equal, to.
1: You know, I'm, I'm sort of surprised by these things, because... If I'm not mistaken, my managed, my my insurance, my managed care, uh, they'll pay for me to have uh, my colonoscopy, and it seems like if if you could get by with a blood screening test uh, annually for twenty dollars a year, they would strongly encourage you to do that.
2: Well, you would think so, and I I think there's a lot of other factors that go into this. If you go strictly by the well u s preventive services task force, and there are other you know people who recommend things out there, other agencies who recommend things, but if you go by that, that is a recommendation, but other things are other concerns are well peace person probably wouldn't do it every year, so since they're going to be lazy, we might as well do a scope on them and then there's doctors who are afraid they're going to miss something and uh I suppose there's been doctors who have been sued because they didn't do a colonoscopy, and who wants that to happen? So then we get into the defensive medicine concern, and then I wouldn't be surprised if the uh, gastroenterology um, specialty would be against this guideline too, because if they didn't do colonoscopies, they might go broke.
1: You uh, know, I, I, I won't. I, I wouldn't frame it that way. I would frame it that these are people who've seen the patients who don't get the colonoscopy and they've seen the colon cancers and they and while they may have subconsciously some issues about money in the back of their heads, really what they're thinking of is that the, the the colon cancers they've seen that could have been prevented. I bet that has, right. that weighs heavily on their minds.
2: And, and another thing, so what you're really saying is that anecdotal evidence affects us all.
1: Absolutely. You
2: know, we all know somebody who had a prostate cancer and wouldn't have known it if they didn't have a PSA test. And then you can say the PSA test saved their life. Okay, you know, I, I get that, But but... If a screening test is actually based on statistical evidence and the likelihood that you'll find something that you can fix early enough to make a difference and that the cost is reasonable to do that, well, that's what a screening test really is. You you could do, let's just say you did a colonoscopy on everybody every year over age 50. Now, how much would that cost per cancer? I don't know the numbers, but it would be millions and millions of dollars. Is it, is it worth spending ten million dollars to find one colon cancer? Well, if you're the one person, you'd say yes. If you're the insurance company paying ten million dollars to find one colon cancer, you might say no.
1: Yeah, yeah. As we as we consider the government playing a bigger role in making these decisions, it'll be interesting to see see how that how that affects things in our society well there was one other test i wanted to make sure i hit on um you 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 cover so many topics in your book and we're not going to be able to cover them all but carotid artery screening i think is another one that I, i find fascinating you know here's a way that uh with just an ultrasound with just you know a painless test you go in you lie down while you're taking a nap they they put a little probe on your neck and they uh they use ultrasound to see if they can find plaques in your carotid arteries that would tell you if you're at risk of stroke and maybe heart disease, too. I mean, that sounds like a, a really good idea.
2: Yes, it does, and it almost seems like there's no reason not to do it. It's so simple. And then nowadays there's those screening companies that go around and offer some of this testing, a bunch of tests for maybe 100 bucks or so, including that. And it sounds like, well, boy, well, I would be foolish to not do it. But as you would know, that there is no test that isn't free of free of risk. Say you have a screening test done; you're not having any trouble. You have a screening test done, and it shows a possibly borderline lesion. Well, what then? Well, then your doctor may want to get the next step of tests. Your doctor may want to do. An angiogram, which is kind of a big deal test, have a dye, and um, I don't know how much that test costs, but I imagine a few thousand dollars, and um,
1: with real, real risks yeah. to your health. Yeah,
2: a risk certainly risk of a dye reaction, but also the risk of uh, show, Well, I don't think that it's really going to dislodge a clot to cause a stroke. But then the next thing is if it shows that you have some irregularity there, but it's not bothering you, the next step might be that surgery is recommended. But the surgery is really not recommended unless you are having symptoms. So if you go way back to the first step, why get a test that might lead to surgery when you're not going to have the surgery unless you're having symptoms? (laughs) So it it, it, does, it doesn't really make sense to do it it sounds so good to do it it really does sound good to do it but it it just complicates things and um the again the United States Preventive Services Task Force this is not just me talking you know this is big agency talking has concluded that if you're having no symptoms there's no proof that the benefits of screening outweigh the harm
1: and uh You know, I have the general sense that no matter what degree of thickening they see in the walls, um, the bottom line is don't smoke, you know, exercise regularly, get your weight under control. It almost doesn't matter what the test shows. What what you should do behaviorally is going to be the same.
2: Right. As long as you're not having symptoms, it is – I have to stress that. You know, my book is not aimed at telling people never see the doctor. Uh, It's aimed at taking sensible care of yourself. And um, if you are having symptoms of a stroke, like your one side is going weak or you can't talk or you have a facial droop, that's a totally different uh, situation, and you should go to the hospital right then, in fact, call 911. But then as part of that evaluation, they would do a carotid artery screening to see if you do have a little plaque, that is broken off to see if you are at risk for a big stroke. Um, but we we're talking about two different populations of people here.
1: Dr. Kelker, thank you for joining us again.
2: I hope that was useful for your uh, listeners.
1: Absolutely. One of the best ways to save money on health care is not to get sick in the first place. Prevention is a fabulous money saver. Dr. Kelker has great advice on saving money on preventive care. Speak to your family doctor. Find out what preventive tests you need and which ones you don't. And in the meantime, don't smoke. Don't drink to excess. Get regular exercise. Eat a healthy diet. Take good care of yourself. Hey, if you're driving, wear a seatbelt. If you're on a motorcycle or a bicycle, wear a helmet. Prevention is just basically good common sense. Next week on our show, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Nancy Oriel, who talks in more detail about a program to help prevent illness and to treat illness. It's called the Family Van. It's one of many mobile clinic programs throughout the country. Dr. Oriel is an associate professor of anesthesiology at the Harvard School of Medicine and founder of their Family Van program. I promise you it will be a very interesting program. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli.
0: Until next week, I wish you the best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.